Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, the CCW panel. Uh, what keeps top post houses CTOs up at night? My name is Ben Baker. I am from the Post New York Alliance. Uh, we are a, we have a booth outside. Um, we are an organisation which was the peak body that. Uh, put together lobbying for the um, post-production of visual effects tax breaks to begin with, and then kind of segued into a thriving membership organisation. We now represent all of the major posts, uh, really broadcast and entertainment technology companies in New York, as well as some 600-odd individuals who are all working at the top of their game in feature films, television shows, documentaries, uh, you name it. Today, uh, we've pulled together this panel to uh, look at an often unsung role in uh, putting all of the technology together, the CTOs. Before I start, though, I just want to do some housekeeping. At PostNY is our Twitter feed. So please feel free to take pictures of all the gorgeous uh, um, contestants up here tonight and um, tweet us, uh, put it up on Twitter, and uh, let us know how we're doing. Um, I'd like to introduce our panel. Um, Harry Scopus is uh, CTO of The Mill. Um, next to him, um, Chris Parker is from Sim Digital. Joe Byrne from Postworks Technicolor. And then on the end, Avi Laniado from The Harbour Picture Company. So to begin with, I'll start with these words. 2K, HDR, DCP, 4K, Super 2K, DCDM, IMF, ACES, ASO3, VR, VD. Some of those terms might mean something to you. Some of them may not mean anything to you. Uh, at a place like this, they get bandied around all the time. Um, it is really up to the CTOs in these organisations to determine what these things mean for their organisations as they come through bodies out of, uh, say, SIMTI or the Academy, who we've also done these events with and into the broadcast community. So uh, we've put this panel together today to talk to uh, these um, uh, CTOs just to find out what makes their days, what, how do they organise themselves. I'm going to uh, jump straight in um, with Joe Byrne, first of all. Joe Byrne, Postworks Technicolor. Joe's done a number of um, panels for us in the past on uh, ACEs and uh, on colour management. I mean, as the CTO of such a, a headline, traditionally headline organisation, Postworks Technicolor, it covers so many different uh, aspects of the business and workflows. I mean, I guess my first question is, how do you do it all? I mean, what is the kind of the key um, thing when you get up every morning? How do you um, approach your job? How do you um, how are you able to encompass all of this into your day-to-day -day work? Um, how, how is this, by the way? Can you hear me okay? The, I, I guess, you know, we, we have sort of the omnivore's dilemma as an organization. That's the Michael Pollan's concept that he, the problem with being an omnivore is that because you can eat everything, you do eat everything. And we, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of like a large general hospital and we kind of, we turn away no patient and we have a mandate as a company to basically to service every, uh, every part of the, the post industry. And um, 
it, it, uh, the, the Technicolor operation in New York is part of a, a, a large network of, of more studio and network focused uh, projects. But our post work side of our, of our family is, is very, um, you know, does everything from uh, uh, reality TV and, and uh, um, uh, 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 quite, a, quite a wide variety of stuff. And in a way, that heterogeneity is very healthy because we have, we've sort of adapted to a lot of the early, uh, the early uh, presences of certain kinds of technology, which have been scaled now to, to, uh, uh, to, to uh, accommodate the, you know, we, a few years ago we used to talk about the introduction of the file-based workflow as that was a big new thing, and, and now that's considered to be completely normal, but that, the, the file-based workflow came into the unscripted world before it came into scripted. And that gave us sort of a, a, a leg up in a way. So it, it, we're a funny combination as an organization of, of the vested interest, big iron, uh, you know, uh, studio system, laboratory-based uh, kind of facility. And we have some aspects in our, in our, in our uh, family of origin uh, of the kind of more nimble, more uh, uh, startup kind of thing. And in this era, um, there is a certain amount to be an advantage to being a late entrant. And so some of the, the uh, you know, the, the gray hair that I have in my, my colleagues share uh, is not an advantage. And like Avi's company, for instance, is a, is a, you know, they're not beginners, but they're a relatively smaller, more, uh, um, you know, a, a company that, that had, had it, you know, or, or whose origins uh, uh, came later, and and I envy a lot of what Avi is able to do because his, you know, his his company was able to um, was started at a at a different point in the curve, um, but uh, we have a little bit of that, and and we're able to take advantage of. Some I mean, of it was things. for a long time. It was, I think, in post production, and certainly in that kind of. Or you know the one-stop shop facility that your um, competitiveness was based on being able to write the large check. You know all of those yeah. big telecine suites we put in to stay yeah. ahead of the next person, and yeah. and I think with the advent of the file based, I mean that must be difficult for you to, because you can no longer leap ahead just by being able to spend a million dollars on the room, right? Yeah. No, I I, I wish. And you'd be mad to spend a million dollars on a room now, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come down here in a second. Right. It's uh, it, you know I, I uh, what I say to my my money people is that um, is I wish there were things that we could spend more money on that would give us a competitive advantage. And the truth is there are very few of them. The one thing about New York City though is that you can spend a lot of money on is real estate, and and that is that's a that's a big challenge. And, of more as much as many other categories of things, and I'm sure we'll all talk about a lot of them. But um, the the big factor now is, you know, how to how to make this work in a way that's accessible to our clientele, and you know, physically. Joe, just give us an idea of just this, the size of the. I mean, you have your own, you have a department that you're the head of. Is that how it works? And well, yeah, I, I'm idiosyncratic as a, as a CTO. It, 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 People laugh at me a lot because uh, I'm, it's a funny title for me. I, you know, if you look at the CTOs of different companies, uh, 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 people who have that role in other other industries, my role is a little bit more typical. It, typically, in a big post-production uh, entity, uh, those people came up essentially through the engineering 
uh, 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 part of the company, and I, I didn't. I was a client. And although I founded a couple of companies that were early adopters, I'm sort of a pathological early adopter. <laughs> and I, I think that's where my head came in. And what was interesting to me about the people that I work for, it was really basically one guy, or two guys, um, is, uh, is that I, for better or worse, uh, was early, you know, came in early on a couple of key technologies, uh, nonlinear editing and DI especially. And so I was able to, you know, I, I, I made all the possible mistakes in a very narrow field, which is a, one definition of being an expert. And so became an expert in a couple of those things really early on and, and didn't, and so my, my ability to do my job is not so much my management abilities, which are very uh, bad, but, it, it to, uh, but it, I guess to try to look a little over the horizon, which is one of the things that people with this title are charged with doing, whether they do it well or not. And right now, honestly, I'm looking over the horizon like here. You know, it's not, there's nothing special about my ability to see, predict the future. I think we, I share with everybody in our industry right now, it's quite clear what to, we all are faced with. Um, it isn't like you have, uh, at this point, there's no aha moment that you see and, and you go, oh yeah, uh, it's plastic, you know, is the next thing. It's, it, there, it's very obvious that there are a lot of things. Um, that we're all doing and we're all sort of expanding in the same place. The problem is that we're not expanding kind of, you know, it, by broadening the path that we're following. We're sort of expanding the cap what, what our industry is defined by kind of spherically from a center point. And the client demand is kind of going all in every direction, kind of like the expanding universe out from this single point. And the, the problem is we're trying to chase all of these different points that are expanding away from our sort of established base. I might um, move over to uh, Avi now. Avi, Harbour Picture Company has just opened the largest sound um, mixing room in New York. Um, uh, I've heard great things about it, um, but can you talk about that process for a bit? I mean, how do you even get the real estate is the thing? How, how, do, you, how do you embark on that process? And then also, I'd like you to talk a bit about, I mean, People bandy around the term future-proofing, but how do you make sure that what you're building now isn't going to be obsolete in four months and somebody else out in Brooklyn can build a, a better, bigger room? So, uh, past few years, there was uh, increased demand by the post-community clients, director, and um, the market to have a larger form of uh, mixing stage in New York City. And uh, there were a few attempts by other companies to do it before, but always they hit the brick wall that uh, was basically money. <laughs> and uh, Harbor saw an opportunity in the current state of uh, the tax incentive that Post Alliance is a big part of making it happen, where um, we see a big increase of uh, work coming to New York and high-end clients that request that kind of work. So about a year ago, we studied the market, the opportunities, and all that, and we decided that we have, you know, and the time is right, and we should try and do something like that. We um, looked for a space like, <clears throat> everybody else is doing in New York as uh, such a, I mean, New York is a busy place with 
not too many opportunities for big space. Um, and uh, we came across these locations downtown, um, 6th Avenue and Grand Street, where there was an adequate you know, space for building a large room with a high ceiling, wide enough, no columns. And um, we decided that that's the place we want to be in. Um, among other challenges were um, what we're going to do there because uh, the industry is moving so much, so fast, that uh, by the time you finish a project like that, um, things change already. I mean, it used to be that I build a room for the next 10 years and it stayed that way and maybe with a little changes it would be fine. But nowadays, every day you wake up and you hear about a new sound system that they try to push into the theaters and new servers and new way of mixing more channels, less channels, bandwidth, connectivity to other studios and even though audio and pictures are kind of still two separate zones there is a lot that has to be dealt with between the two worlds. How do I deal with it? Um, collaborations with my peers at, at the company um, and we try to you know attack the problems ahead of time but like I said many times the pace of the demands is so so faster than anything else that um, takes uh, a lot of uh, work and study. And we were talking about it before. Uh, nowadays, I find that the time they allow you to do all that work and study is not there. They come to you. And I'm talking about the clients who comes to you and they expect the next day to have a solution to the problems. Um, that would kept me up at night, by the way. <laughs> Building that room for eight months, I was thinking about it almost constantly over the fact that by the time we're going to finish and invest all that we wanted to invest in it, it's, it might be outdated. So with that, um, you know, people obviously then decide on a chunk of money that they're going to spend for that. How much are you required to project into the future and say, well, I mean, do you look ahead five years and go, okay, well, the desk will come out and, you know, we'll have to replace these awnings and, you know, Having, over what kind of time are you actually factoring into your thinking that you will have to upgrade? I spend a lot of time before we start the project on trying to budget project like that or any project because it's a key component to uh, having us to succeed creating an environment like that especially nowadays when you have so many options to go about I mean it used to be that you had only two or three scenarios that you could have accomplished the mission but uh, nowadays you look around and there are so many different ways to do some, something that uh, if you don't plan it right, you can be out. Um, so m more time is spent on budgeting, planning, designing uh, as much as you can. Of course, things change through the course of the process or uh, the build. Um, 
but I find that I spend you know, much of my time on preparing for a project like that beforehand. Um, on that project, I think I spent a whole month of before we even you know, broke ground on, ha on knowing exactly what kind of a components we're going to use, what kind of uh, the layout, the, the whole infrastructure had to be planned ahead of time. And are you required to, in, in planning that investment, to give an update to say, well, in two years, we will have to be spending this again for the... Uh, do you have to plan for the upkeep and is that in the same exercise? Yes, but reality is different nowadays and uh, I come up with scenarios and ideas and what if and definitely worst case scenario situations, but uh, most likely it's going to change. Uh, as, I, as I said, Things change so fast nowadays in, with the requirement um, that uh, an example, I, we open up the room and the, the first session that we had there, the mixer came in and requ requested something completely different than what we had. <laughs> so I had to tear it down and set it up the way he wants and the next job requested, you know, they requested something else as far as a mixing engine and all that. Um, Planning, we try as much as we can, but it's much harder than it used to be, I have to say. It's the biggest part of my, you know, staying up at night. And what team do you have around you to, to do that? Um, much more than it used to be. You know, in the old company that I used to be at, uh, I had about seven tech guys that worked for me. Nowadays, I have three interns and uh, two, two other tech guys that deal with uh, other things as well. Yeah. I'd like to throw over to Chris now, Sim Digital. Um, Chris, can you just tell us a little bit first? I mean, I'm very interested. Sim Digital is in a number of different locations. You're an international <coughs> company. Um, you, how long have you been in New York? Uh, I'm not based in New York, but Sim, the Sim Group has been in New York for uh, about 18 months now. We started again, I think Avi had touched on something key that's, that's a big part of our jobs and that's, that's out there is reacting to what, what clients are demanding of your organization uh, and then trying to figure out a way to make that make sense for the client versus make sense for your organization. and so. So we had, we, we had determined by virtue of some of our uh, key, client, key clients that, that New York was a place that, that, we, should, uh, that we should be in and, and so that started, uh, th that process started about 18 months ago. And are you involved, I mean that, uh, that involved the uh, acquisition of Post Factory? That was the second step. First step, we launched a Bling office in Brooklyn. Oh, of course, yes. Uh, for, we segment kind of post-production into different kind of categories, as everyone does. There's, there's obviously sound versus picture. There's, there's the front end of post that, that has a completely separate list of client requirements than the back end of post. And so we had started uh, in a more manageable way Due to lots of the reasons that Joe and Avi had referenced, trying to trying to manage what we know is going to be a, a, a field of kind of 
unknowns and constant change and how much to invest. And so we had started with Bling Brooklyn and then determined again uh, that, that, we, that we wanted a, a bit of a bigger presence. So uh, met the, the, the people at Post Factory and then that. And what is, your, what is the CTO's role in that? Um, <coughs> you know, I mean, there must have been an assessment of likely candidates for acquisition. And do you play a role in that? Organization, yeah, there's, yeah, and and again, I think uh, you know the CTO's role it, it can vary depending on the size of your organization, the, the kind of the, the the scope and geographic scope of your organization. Again, you know, Joe Joe touched on it, having not come through the engineering uh, ranks, which I didn't as well, and I think so. There's there's, there's several facets and lots of really good and smart people within our organization and it's about kind of taking a more holistic look at all of those opinions that come from people that really specialize in facility engineering versus software engineering versus sound engineering versus uh, you know uh, other hardware engineering and and kind of taking that and 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 making decisions for the company and being a bit of a go-between as to how it works in budgets, how it, how it works. Uh... And so for, for you, how do you negotiate, you know, there's obviously existing technology that, um, that the entity has made decisions and made investments around that may or may not fit into a larger uh, company perspective. How do you negotiate that in that first, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, you, you kind of have to look at it as to the reasons why you're doing something, and and uh, for for us, we certainly don't want to uh, upset uh, what we think is a good thing. We want to slowly augment it over time. You know, specific examples in the post world that are that are part of a part of the technology as well. Something as simple as scheduling software when you start to, yes, when you yeah, start to span one city to another city asset management software I mean hard physical assets uh, these types of things that you have to analyze and you know there's benefits to kind of making changes there but at the same time you have to measure measure the timing by which you do that uh, I feel and and it's partly the CTO's role and and, a, and again, a larger group to make sure that those changes are are implemented at, at what we think is the right time to to allow augmentation, but not at the expense of anything, ideally. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to upset both your existing employees who have obviously, you know, worked stuff out and know where, know how to get things done. Yeah. And then you, ha you probably have an imperative which is about a, an economy of scale in terms of purchasing and that kind of thing as well. Exactly. And so there's things that, again, it kind of goes into different categories and, and there's things that are, are more of that low-hanging fruit, as it were, that, that, that you can achieve instant you know, efficiencies over and other things that, are, that I think every, you're wise to really kind of sit back and spend more time looking at how it works, really trying to think through how it would fit in if you made a bigger wholesale change. So is there a centre to SIM, which is in Canada? Is that the mothership? There, 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 I mean, if, if the you know, uh, lawyers and accountants would say yes, the, the mothership is <laughs> yes. in Toronto. Um, we, is that where you have your most staff? Uh, no, I'd say the most staff is Los Angeles. Yeah, right. Um, you know, but uh, we try very hard also 
you know, to not do too little in, in integrating so that it's just a bunch of islands that New York does this and Atlanta does this and Toronto does this. We, we, we work very hard to try and make it more of a uh, one group. I mean, sorry, I was um, in London and my first job in London was working on the bookings desk at Ascent Media just after they had gone in, bought 16 companies, made them into eight companies. You know, that, that, that can be a traumatic process, that uh, thing. How do, how do you think, how can you lead people along with the kind of changes that you're introducing and, and being an agent of change in these new companies? I mean, it, it, part, part of the role is, is when you're, again, it, it, we're here talking about the CTO role, I guess, and, that, and part of that role is to try and see every side of the story because, because you're gonna have, and whether or not it's, it's us with different, formerly different companies or, or, or other companies that have departments within their company that have ideas that sometimes conflict with one another and people that want to you know, fight for their idea to be the idea that gets implemented you know, sometimes that just causes friction amongst departments, and I think you really have to play that role of 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 a uh, you know an unbi try to be an unbiased person to to try and maybe recognize when there's those tensions that are starting to flare up, rise up, and 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 create again as 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 an environment that allows those conflicting views, conflicting personalities potentially to understand what the overall goal is and, uh, and, and to give people a voice to, to, to feed into the system. Have you had the occasion that something that maybe was on one of the limbs of the company has come into the centre? Me Meaning, have you ever had the occasion where maybe the main company was, was using a particular technology but the the newer company was using something that might have yeah. been recognised as better? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as we made a bigger push into post-production as the SIM group, um, you know, adding, adding, uh, adding companies that were more sizable, more established in certain areas certainly, certainly had that influence. We weren't a facility-based post house. Oh, right. Uh, you know, we were a mobile front end uh, only post house and, and very specialized uh, and to this day that remains a, a, what we think is a, a great strength when paired with the facilities but but yeah I mean there's, there's been lots of examples we call it I mean standard term but best practices we try and mm. we try and implement whatever the group feels is the best idea it's not roll into this here's the letter of the law that like you it's, hey, there's good ideas everywhere. I mean, we all, you started with a long list of things. It's constant change in our world. So it's, it's I think, important for CTOs in this day and age to, to kind of solicit all the, all the varying opinions out there to, to help formulate your own. I'll move on to Harry. Harry, you're at the mill. Um, very well-established uh, British visual effects company, particularly in the commercials and television, but also, I mean, won early Oscars and Gladiator. I've walked past your London office and seen them in the window there. Yep. How, does, how does the mill deal with... The, I mean, commercials is such a high-paced, um, uh, volatile kind of um, segment of the industry where, you know, you can conceive an idea on Wednesday and it, it might be on air the Friday, uh, you know, the next week. How does the mill kind of um, streamline 
even R&D. I mean, you, you guys are moving into areas like virtual reality, which I find very interesting, but how is that coordinated among all the companies in the mill? I mean, how many um, locations have you got now? Well, we um, currently have uh, four locations. Um, we have London, New York, Chicago, LA. Um, and we also have uh, some little, we call them mini mills, uh, within uh, some of our clients' uh, facilities where we can do uh, some remote work, meaning mainly it's grading where uh, we stream a live feed um, into their facility and they can grade with a colorist in any one of our locations. And or that would be in, in, you're inside an agency, say? Or yeah, say you're inside an agency or some of these uh, smaller play, uh, facilities in, in smaller markets that, you know, really want to grade or do, um, say that it's a small edit uh, facility, um, maybe in Detroit, um, and they want to use some of our colorists, but they don't have the talent locally, uh, and it's really expensive for them to get on the plane and bring their clients and so on and so forth. So, you know, between those locations, we've got our four uh, core locations, and uh, we manage a bunch of these little kind of uh, mini mill sites. Um, so, you know, to keep it all together in the, in the fast-paced uh, world, like you said, you know, you could uh, conceivably receive a job uh, on a Wednesday and deliver it on a Friday. You really do have to be nimble, and it's uh, just like all of these guys said. It's, um, it's, uh, it's trying to keep the harmony between um, uh, people and uh, technology. Um, and it's really best practices and creating uh, streamlined workflows. So it's, we've gone away from the million dollar rooms and you know, in the days where people would be uh, going to a facility because they had a telecine or they had a ADO or a kaleidoscope or a Harry or a Henry, which was a very specific piece of equipment that did a specific task. Uh, and now, you know, everyone's based on a workstation and you've got a number of different pieces of software that can do many tasks. So, in order to keep harmony, um, you have to have an efficient workflow. Uh, and that workflow needs to be ingrained in the culture of how people work. Because once you start deviating from the workflow, that's when you start hitting roadblocks. So, you know, what we try to do within all of our facilities and, you know, yes, we're all different profit centers, but, you know, we work as a collective, uh, is to really try, from a technical standpoint, um, communicate to each other, our engineering teams in, in all locations, uh, you know, by uh, having biweekly calls and, you know, one, one of the calls concentrates more on the IT side of things, the other um, call concentrates more on the uh, general aspect of uh, technology. And this is an international call? With this is an international call yeah. between uh, London, New York, Chicago, LA, uh, and we have uh, two a week. And, you know, we all kind of uh, try to agree on uh, best practices as far as um, saying, hey, you know what, Let's, this works for us, this doesn't work for us. And on top of that, each location, whether you're in London or New York, or Chicago, or LA, you know, I think people also forget that, yes, the end product can be a commercial, or can be a film, or can be a virtual reality experience, or whatever, but the way that 
each location kind of attacks it is slightly different. And it's not the technology that does that, and it's not the workflow, but it's the clientele. You know, mm -hmm. when you're in London, um, the clients and the culture is slightly different than it is in New York versus than it is in Chicago versus than it is in LA. And you don't really realize that. Um, and I, I, you kind of do. When you go there for a day or two, you're like, oh yeah, these people talk funny or, <laughs> or whatever. And you, you, know, you kind of move on. But you know, when I was uh, building out our Chicago office, uh, I went there and um, you know, I was dealing with A to Z, of course, you know, anywhere from uh, you know, air conditioning to you know, global connectivity. Um, and you know, you start to deal with the local people there and you know, you come from New York, everything's got to get done, one, two, three, you've got ten people behind you, you're trying to set this person to do this, you want a delivery date on this. And I was talking to all these various contractors and they were kind of, at, after a while I was like, they were, I felt like they were all looking at me funny. And I caught myself and I said, you know what, I'm working at a different pace than they are. It's the same thing, it's an electrician, it's a construction person, it's an architect, but you know, you go to these different markets and people work differently. You're bringing and it's, your big New York boots into Chicago. That's right, you have, to, you have to kind of adapt to the way that they work. So whether you're doing a commercial in New York or whether you're doing it in LA, yeah, the end of the, at the end of the day it's gonna be a 15 or a 30 second spot, but how you get there from your client into the system, the system being the, 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 the machine, the kind of, you know, you put the coin in and, and it flattens it out and creates something, is, is a little bit different. So you have to kind of take that into account and, and be able to manage the expectations of the employees, of the clients, and, and everybody else. And I know that's got n almost nothing to do with technology, but in a way it does. Well, it's one of the things I wanted to talk about with, with all of you, really. But, I mean, staffing is a, you know, a big issue that you all have to deal with. I mean, um, and I'll throw this open to anyone who wants to answer, really. But how do you now... I mean, there's no... We've all been told for so long now there's no set career paths anymore and people are really constructing their own careers and making their own raises by bouncing between companies sometimes. You know, how do you hold on to good staff, encourage them, um, look at training... Um, I, I ran a department in uh, London, a 60-person grading department at Framestore. We knew that the entry-level positions, say, were a data operator and a film scanner, someone who could operate a film scanner. Both of those jobs being obsolete now, virtually by either digital asset management systems or by the fact that nobody's shooting film. Um, but those were the two kind of jobs that you could put anybody into to kind of test their mettle under panic situations and kind of knew, like, well, they can learn software... Can I throw it open? I mean, how do you cultivate staff in your areas and, um, and, and retain the good people? It's much harder now than it used to be because uh, we used to work with linear media medium and we are now working with a non-linear medium which also reflect on what, expect, what is expected from the staff, the engineers. You expect the people that you hire to be able to jump from one thing to another in like no time and think nonlinear. Think that you're gonna have to be able to deal with, just like what Harry said, deal with 
changing gears, change. one piece of software can do so many things that the person needs to be able to switch between, you know, the different modes of, you know, thinking, operating, and, and dealing with issues. So um, hiring the new generations who grew up with, you know, gaming and computer literate and knowing how to run things and be able to adapt to situations is what is required by the people that we hire. The other point that I wanted to uh, uh, make here is um, what I find uh, what I find with people that people have different interests and if you nurture it, if you um, invest in it, you get better products. The staff that you have should know almost everything about what they do, but what I try to do is con have, concentrate people to do what they like, and you get much better results. Yes. So do you think Agreed. you guys are looking for specialists in your areas, or is having a more general approach across... I mean, it, it sounds like you're not just looking for your classically trained broadcast engineer anymore who... Most of the job is taken by software now, as you say. You know, do, are you finding people who are who have a broadcast engineer background and as well can do Python scripting, you know, to assist with conforms? Uh, it's a, it's it's difficult. Um, the way that that I typically come across people is um, when I need somebody, uh, I, I reach out to my peers number one, because um, it's kind of your your best um, mode of reference. Um, and then from there, once you start a conversation, sometimes, you know, they're like, well, I don't know anybody, but, you know, I know that he knows somebody who knows him or her. And um, try to find somebody uh, that way. And then, like you were saying, is like, you find somebody, like, say that you need a, you, you needed a script writer. So you can advertise that and say, hey, you know what, I, I need somebody who's well-versed in, in Python. Um, but it's really difficult to, uh, because we are, all of our companies are probably, we're not these monster um, companies of, of thousands of people where you can have layers of people that can accommodate all shifts and um, accommodate for when people go on vacations and they have their personal uh, issues and so on and so forth. So you really have to have a Swiss army knife of people, meaning that, like you were saying, Avi, is they need to know a little bit about everything, but you've got to find what makes them happy and what their specialty is. So my group of people, you know, I've got guys that specialize in, in coding and script writing and in storage management, and uh, some one guy's really into video games, so once we got into the VR and AR stuff, it was like, well, you know, um, this is kind of a, a perfect place for him because that's what really excites this guy. So it's just like finding these little bits and pieces and when you do um, nurture the people from within and find what their interests are and say, hey, you know what, this guy's really into doing this or that, let me push them a little bit on that side. It takes a bit of micromanagement uh, and it can be a pain in the ass in the beginning, but you know, if you stick with it and you push those people, because a lot of people um, uh, that come, unfortunately, on the tech side are slightly introverted as well. So um, when you push them and push them and push them, eventually they're like, oh shit, I really like this. And then you really do achieve 
uh, a much better result from them. So uh, I agree with you. It's you have to nurture people and um, see what their interests are. But at the end of the day, you do have to get the job done. So yeah. you do have to fill all the different roles with the core. But then when people, when you see people gravitating to a, a certain area, let them explore that and try and educate them and push them in that direction. It's a, it's a factor of the fast pace of change that you don't get to, people don't deepen as much in a particular niche as they used to do. Yeah. You know, you don't get to be, you know, a tape operator would basically thread the same machine, you know, over, Blind do you even know what a tape operator is? You know, sort of like that thing. I, I learned how to edit on an upright moviola, and the, we have a bunch of upright moviolas that we use essentially as, like, conversation pieces. Decor, you know? right. Yeah. yeah. But the, you don't get the muscle memory and all the things that you do from constantly practicing that craft, but you get a sort of, but there are other things that you get by this sort of generalized system thinking, the computational thinking, that is the the fundamental uh, the, the 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 thread that runs throughout all of what we do now. And in a funny way, even though there are still very narrow areas of specialization that you can get into, it's more uh, it's more a kind of an intellectual capacity that we look for than necessarily great depth in one area. What I would say about in hiring that we do is that we look for great depth in one area <clears throat> of something. And that could be playing the cello, honestly. And that if you, if if you can get that deep and that good at one thing, you're, that, 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 that talent and that, the knack and the heuristics that you get from that translate often very well to other things. And, then you, and then, so you're essentially trainable in other areas relatively quickly. Um, and we're big enough that we can balance that a little bit, but we still have the, the more senior people in the company are still there, you know, a crazy, crazy amount of time. And, and that, I mean, that, what, so. Oh, what, what Avi was saying of your team reduced to four interns and two engineers now, I mean, there, yeah. there, there is a, an expectation of people learning on the job when the jobs have become so technically complicated and ambitious, you know, I mean, I remember having a conversation with some visual effects companies about a training initiative and they said, well, there's not really any place that you can leap from serving coffee to being a, you know, a first-rate rotoscope artist unless that person is willing to put in a lot of time after hours and do the tutorials and, you know, they had a lot of tutorials set up, but it wasn't like there was... It was just like, oh, now's your chance here. We're going to train you how to rotoscope. You know, how do you, I mean, how do you deal with that expectation that... I mean, I, I know in my own work, there was... Uh, it, it hit a point where you couldn't just... In post-production, we had the luxury of people wanting to get into this industry, and so you could throw bodies at a problem. Despotting 35mm film, for example. You could put someone on and give them a brief tutorial in, like, this is how the paint and clone tool works go, we're going to have, be working you 18 hours a day to clean this film. But those jobs now are going out with the increased technical kind of... Uh, there's a lot that happens under the hood now, you know? There's a lot that we don't need to worry about, but there's also a, a high degree of entry level. Yeah, 
mean, I, for, from my point of view, I think, just to piggyback on what, what, what Joe was saying, it's if you're looking, if, if the people that, <clears throat> that you're looking for have an aptitude for learning and for, for solving problems and, and actually that's what kind of they thrive on as opposed to just wanting to thread the machine, but they would prefer to have problems that they get to solve uh, you know, as you, again, you started off by throwing out all the acronyms. There's new problems every day, and there's if if your staff is is uh, the 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 type of people who enjoy solving problems, and your organization is kind of uh, promoting that as a culture, and and uh, then I we've seen. I mean, we've been we feel we've been extremely lucky. I'm sure everyone would say the same thing, but we feel we've been extremely lucky with the group of people that have assembled and the, the types of problems that they've solved uh, has been, you know, it's, it's astonishing to, to watch. And I think that fuels the right person. There's always going to be, you know, there's always gonna be the, the people that, that don't like that kind of hectic, frantic, it's always new everyday environment. Yeah. But, for the time being, that, that is kind of the world that we live in as, as we're dealing with, with everything that, that the clients are demanding of our organizations. And, and there's, I think there's a lot of people that do thrive on kind of hitting curveballs as opposed to just, you know, going through the motions. Yeah. It's interesting, Harry, what you said about uh, maintaining a workflow, an aptitude for workflow. At the moment, there are a number of, and have been for a while, a, a number of um, kind of platforms coming together, um, consolidation in the technology. The hype that we hear is, oh, you'll just install this one thing and then all of your workflow will be moderated under the hood by this one technology platform, which will do everything. You can't have those other products that you use anymore because we've all got to... I mean, right. is that ever going to be solving anything? I mean, you guys are a, a large Autodesk site. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're at this point, you know, we, we can't... Um we're Autodesk, we use Nuke, we use Creative Cloud. So, you know, we use all of the main tools that are uh, available and uh, a lot of the folks come up using. But, you know, under the hood, um, you know, the workflow is as simple as um, data mining. You know, we're like miners at this point. We've, uh, we're all away from the tape and the threading of the machines and it used to be a reel that used to hand to somebody that used to go down the street and used to go up on another machine, we're now, you know, we're just generating data. So whether you're on an Autodesk system, whether you're on a Foundry system, whether you're on um, um, an Adobe system, at the end of the day, you're creating data and the data needs to live somewhere. So part of the workflow uh, aspect of it is being organized and uh, creating predictable places for all of your information to live. So, regardless if you're using Nuke or you're using Flame or you're using After Effects or whatever the next uh, tool is going to be, is that, hey, you know what? I know where I'm going to go to find my data. Whether I'm in London, whether I'm in New York, whether I'm in Chicago or whatever, I'm going to open up this project and I know exactly where uh, this person put the data. So. You know, that's part of the predictability of creating a workflow uh, to keep the harmony, uh, like I was saying before. And then, once that happens, is you gotta keep 
like I was saying, we're data miners, you've got to keep that moving because eventually, as the jobs come in and it's a fast-paced environment, you know, job one comes in, job two comes in, you're up to job 200 and 300, and, you know, job one has been shipped, but no one did anything with that data, so it's just sitting there. What do you do with it? So, you know, part of the workflow is managing that data so when, as jobs come in and jobs go out, that the data kind of follows the job. Mm -hmm. Data comes in, you create a hierarchy, everybody works regardless of their tool set, stuff lives and dies, and that's a constantly modifying thing for us that, you know, we actually have a board, an advisory board, that we look at all this stuff, and, you know, a couple of months, six months down the road, we're like, oh, you know, we need to create another structure for this new tool and add it to it, yeah. okay? But as the, as the job goes, the data follows it. Job gets built, job gets shipped. Why well, keep the data in all of your fast storage? Let's move it into, automatically move it into Nearline. Because we know the probability of as soon as it's built and shipped, someone's going to want to make a revision. Yes. <laughs> you know? So as of course, you know, all the jobs come back, someone wants to make a revision. What we do is um, we keep the, the data active in a read-only state so they can pull the assets they need to make a revision into a new job. So to keep everything nice and tidy. And the stuff that's been in Nearline ages off after a while if it hasn't been accessed and it goes into archive after that. So, you know, that's kind of the under the engine part for us is really it's managing data because we generate so much data, it consumes as much disk as you buy, there's never enough, uh, but it's really just um, cultivating a culture of trying to keep people working and cleaning up after themselves, and when you do get a new software tool, you know, make sure it has a spot to live in the hierarchy so uh, you can manage it a lot better. Chris, how do you handle data among, are there projects that go through multiple sites in your company and how, do you, how are you managing all of that data? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there, and it goes kind of globally as well because of the, the, the deployment on the, on, the, on the dailies lab work, you know. The yeah. example is, uh, you know, it's and, and that's, that's, there's always fresh problems to solve there. We did a, a movie on the Aries 65 camera that was shot outside of Beijing in China which definitely kept me up at night, but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so a lot of data uh, that kind of originates out in the field and then has to come back uh, into the facility. And so there's a, there's a lot of systems, protocols, processes, definitely uh, that overall, the, 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 the workflow as it pertains to the data is, is something that keeps me keeps me up at night, you know, I always, I always say that you, you can, you can, you, you can get fired off of a job if they don't like your color, but, you know, if you start losing negative and, and assets, it's going to cause much more problems than, than, than just the one to show that you're, that you're not responsibly managing their data on. So the, all of those systems and processes and the security of it are, uh, are, are, are discussed and, and it's an ongoing kind of process that, that, that's always looking to improve, you know, and so it, and that has to cross over different staffing groups from the engineers to the, to the workflow producer team, uh, you know, to the, to the uh, technicians and, and the, you know, the, the actual uh, artists that are doing the work, if there's sound involved, it, it needs to branch out there as well. Yeah. 
I want to ask you, we're kind of coming up, we've got five minutes to go, but I want to ask you, you know, the million dollar question is, how do you um, deal with reinvestment? Um, you know, you have heads of company who are looking after money, um, now you, the amount of money that is, has left this business, um, anecdotally, I, I was in a meeting a couple of years ago, this would have been five or six years, as DCP first started to be come about, I think I delivered my second DCP to Fox Studios and was in the head of Fox. Um, and he said, oh, if we can convert all of our films over to DCP, then we'll save $22 million a year on FedEx <laughs> from not shipping film cans around. That was, not, let alone what it would cost to manufacture all those film cans that they were shipping around. That money hasn't kind of been diverted into other better films. I mean, that's probably a Jennifer Aniston film uh, every year. Um, hey. <laughs> um, but uh, that, um, that money has kind of left and, and you have a kind of requirement for, uh, as Joe said, the kind of expansion of um, like a, a star, the expansion of um, the goals that you have, but it's not like the money's expanding anymore. So how do you cover concepts like return on investment over so many years? I mean, how are you dealing with that stuff now? Yeah. I mean, from our end, it's, there's, there's certainly processes in place. It, it's, it, it's been a learning experience. I think you, it, under this kind of new paradigm, as, as the film and tape world has now kind of firmly shifted over, it was a little bit harder to kind of predict early on, but, but you learn over time. There's a lot of learning from recent past that you can do. And, and you have to budget and build forward-looking budgets based on the world of kind of constant change. And that just, because that's how it plays out, we know that's how it plays out. We, and so you are taking best guesses at shelf life of certain technologies, this is how we do it anyway. Taking best guesses at, 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 at shelf life and kind of Dividing the capital needs into into you know what we would consider just maintenance to maintain what what we have the business that we have going and then and then and then growth the balance there is there's two different camps there's the you know the the, the money people who define growth one way and the you know the the staff and and the the people that are making it happen in the company that might define it another way for example. If, if, you, if, if the average price of a show went down, you could have to do 15 shows, maybe you were doing 10 before. Your staff all see that as a massive amount of growth that needs more investment. The money people would see that as a, a negative if the total dollars went down. So you're constantly balancing that, and it's, it's an important part of the job to, to how, how your forecasts play out in reality become a very kind of key part of the job. I was responsible for making one of the first DCPs in the UK <coughs> for Casino Royale, which is being released uh, widely digitally and on print. So we charged the client akin to what we would charge to strike a negative print. It was £18,000. The next one we did, which was a month later, was £6,000. And then the one after that was £4,000. And then it kind of just hovered around that. I think you can get a DCP now for two and a half grand. <laughs> That happened so rapidly. I mean, thankfully, there wasn't a huge investment in our infrastructure to put in the DCP encoder and that kind of thing. But I mean, is there anything you can bank on anymore that will you know, be able to support a margin on your investment going forward? I mean, what kind of time frames are you guys looking at these investments being made? 
Uh, I, I always go, I still go by the motto, uh, penny wise, pound foolish, when uh, it, it um, pertains to um, infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of us probably agree on this is that, you know, infrastructure isn't a billable item, um, but it is the, it, it is the, the, the heart and soul of, of the operation. So I always fight to start out big with the infrastructure because if you, in my mind is, uh, and what I found from my experience is that if I invest in a piece of hardware, say like a core switch that is on the top of the line, I'm gonna squeak out a lot more years out of it versus if I just get like, you know, the 199 special just to get things going. And at least if, if I start out my infrastructure like that, um, it's a little bit of a harder sell, but when you, when you do look at it from a return on investment standpoint, is you get a lot more life out of it, and it stabilizes the whole um, workflow process. Yeah. I think what we've been doing is investing in the pipeline rather than in the pieces of the pipeline. Um, it, it's, it, it's, it's relatively easier to make uh, a good prediction about where the, the basic components of the, of the workflow is. And in a funny way, capital investment is the smallest part of the cost of running our companies now, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. And, and there was a number floated around uh, pretty widely a couple of years ago when we were making the early transition to 4K and UHD that the, the, uh, the clients were expecting to pay an increment of 15% for dealing with four times as much data. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually proved to probably be about true. I'd be really happy if I was getting mm -hmm. reliably 15% more for delivering these projects. So then a modular <laughs> um, product's far more valuable to you than buying you know, a suite of things. It, I, I think it's that the modular pieces are relatively inexpensive. And the core pieces, for instance, something like switching fabric, is, uh, is something that you can more reliably uh, anticipate where the changes are likely to come. Every once in a while you get blindsided. But you know, something like the Resolve thing, I think sort of flat-footed a lot of people in, in, in our industry. But you know, they really didn't expect that big a, big a, a discount on a, on a core piece of what you were used for. I mean, that's a manufacturer aggressively. Yeah, <clears throat> really turned uh, the whole thing upside down in, yeah. in a pretty dramatic way. But the truth is that the companies that even had heavy involvement, uh, investment in Resolve, um, when in Resolve was discounted by you know, two orders of magnitude, uh, their main investment was not in the Resolve boxes, not in the Linux boxes. It yeah. was in the people and the infrastructure necessary to do it. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And it's a little easier. We, ha we, for instance, were very, very late adopters of 4K projection. And the reason why we, we did it is because I couldn't get any of my guys to uh, to feel good enough about any of the available, you know, the, the shipping products. And we we followed we followed the curve in that. And the reason and we were we made only made the investment we absolutely had to, and had met a minimum um, uh, performance spec. And that was, you know, that was hard because a lot of people were getting ahead of us there, and that, um, you know, that invest that investment is is a tough one because you know you're buying at the end of a of a of a generation, and there you have to follow the client. 
So we're coming to a close, but I just want um, a very quick round. Um, what do you think people should be looking at at uh, CCW? What is the, the next breakthrough technology, something you've been interested in, something you'd be seeking out, um, some top tips from CTOs? HDR uh, is coming down the pike, so. Yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think that one is, is going to rear up with regularity in the, in the near term. You guys down the end? Um, you know, I'm coming from the audio side, and CCW is not really the right <laughs> show for it. But uh, last week there was an AS show right here at the Javits Center. And my thing is about, uh, I'll do it briefly, uh, about the next thing that the audio community should concentrate on is uh, um, instead of investing in gear and hardware and even software, the tools that we use should be more human-friendly, human interface to separate the artist from thinking um, on the technical process of doing things so they can concentrate on the creative part. And you could see baby steps in that direction, like Avid is now working on the S6 and all that. And you could see that they are starting to understand that, but uh, that's where the future is. Joe, for you, what's uh... <laughs> it's good hot dogs? Star Wars. Yeah, I, I, I've seen only a couple of things. I mean, it's so much of what we do now is incremental. There is no breakthrough that that I'm that I'm seeing. Um, you know, I think it's going to very much depend on the work that you're doing and what what you're. You know, I, I, in the '70s, I drove a yellow cab as a cab driver. And one of the things they, they told us to do at the time is um, always ask your fare uh, what the best way to go where you're going is. And they inevitably know better than you do. And uh, listen to your clients. And you know, look and see where your clients are, where, where they're going. Great advice. We've only got a, uh, is there anyone who has burning questions for our panel? I know I've got to wrap it up in just a second, but if we, could, if we have one or two questions, yes. I have a sort of a pithy answer. I, I wanted to do the opposite thing that my dad did. <laughs> and my dad was a, a computer systems analyst in the 50s. And I'm doing his job now. <laughs> I've also, you know, there's, I think, I, I think one of the things is that you, you develop, you know, I mentioned heuristics. You develop, a, you, you, you recognize patterns and I think that that's a talent that some of us have, and and I, I, I you know that's something that I found that I was it was good easy for me to see, and it may have been listening to my dad and you know with the things that he pulled his hair out about and kept him up at night. And I think that you recognize certain kinds of structural things in the in the, in the environment, and and that's the thing that I've that I've relied on. You know, I was I was trained as an architect. I, I didn't I didn't really want to do this at all, but I, what I found is that filmmaking needs architects. Yeah, I'd, I'd just been, my role within the company was kind of taking the technology as in the new part of the, when film was transitioning early days to digital and, and 
kind of taking technology and, and turning it into a, a, a new product or service more so than being a, a, a backbone engineer of, of any kind. So it, it kind of, the, the, the role came based on, on more of that forward-looking, taking what was out there and turning it into a, a, a service for, for a television show or a, or a movie. Yeah, like Joe, I didn't want to do what my dad did, uh, which was the restaurant business. Uh, and I, I'm, but I'm still kind of like a short order cook uh, in uh, digital post-production. Um, but I was always a tinkerer uh, as a kid, taking things apart, putting things back together again. Um, and I, I met a broadcast engineer um, when I was in my teens and discovered a world that, that was unknown to me. And uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, me? <laughs> I actually, uh, I had an engineering degree, but I really wanted to be on the artistic part of the process. Um, when I was hired 30 years ago by my previous employee at Sound One, um, he wanted me to start as a tech guy, and uh, two or three years later, I realized that what I dreamed to be is not really what I wanted to do. I just liked what, you know, doing what I'm doing. and slowly, slowly progressed into what I'm doing today. So you gotta love what you do, you know, basically. I'm getting the closed down uh, <laughs> red light right here on my desk. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, we have been the Post New York Alliance. Thank you, our CTOs. Thank you. And thank you everyone for coming along.